Welcome to The Last Call with Two Boozy Hacks. My name's John Sweeney, and I'm in London and in New York, Mike Weiss. We have a competition each week, whose country is more fucked, the United States or the United Kingdom. Um, and today, we're joined by the former deputy leader of the Labour Party, Tom Watson, who is, of course, a bit of a drinker himself, and also somebody who is um, as well-placed to look about the world um, now that he's um, stepped down from politics. But first, before we get to Tom, Mike, who's winning our competition? Whose country is more troubled, the United Kingdom or the United States? Well, uh, let's see. We've moved down the sliding scale from the president of the United States instructs people to maybe inject or drink bleach um, and use UV rays to cure the current plague to the president of the United States insists on spreading a completely debunked conspiracy theory about the death of a congressional staffer 20 years ago on Twitter. This prompts Twitter to take action, not against that, but against his other falsehoods and bits of misinformation related to mail-in ballots and their propensity for fraud. That kicks off into President Trump now issuing an executive order, which tries to dilute or if not scrap Section 230 in the American legislation that essentially created the internet, which holds that um, platforms which publish uh, user-generated content cannot be held liable for that content, but also they have the right to regulate or moderate the content as they see fit. So now basically you've got the far right and the Trumpian, whatever you want to call it, uh, clack, claiming that the president of the United States who's just called a press conference for 2 p.m., by the way, a man with, with the, the attention of billions, that his First Amendment rights have been circumscribed by Twitter, a publicly traded corporation, which routinely takes down terrorist content, bans bots and trolls emanating from hostile foreign governments, and so on and so forth. So I got to say, um, America is, this is not even a contest. I think we have to scrap the entire theme of this podcast because it's not even close. It really isn't. Okay. Well, there are a number of things I need to correct you on. But first of all, the internet was, of course, created by Tim Berners-Lee um, in Britain. Um, no, I thought two, it was Al Gore. It was Al Gore, mate. It was Al Gore, so you say. Um, number two, um, we almost had a meltdown here because the Prime Minister's advisor, Dominic Gumming, uh, Cummings, um, was found uh, to have passed at least some part of the lockdown, not in his uh, primary home in London. Stay at home was the instruction, stay at your primary home, but went to his what seems like his second home uh, in County Durham. Uh, he drove there. Then he, um, and he's got a, um, um, a son. Uh, he was worried about health care. There were up in Durham, there's, there's close family, but there was also some close family in London too. But nevertheless, he took the long journey to Durham, and that looks that looks a bit fishy. But then he went um, when it, once he'd got better, he went for a sixty mile round trip um, ride to a beauty spot um, called uh, Barney Castle, Barnard Castle, uh, to test his eyesight, and uh, this, this everybody thought was entirely ridiculous. However, uh, you're right, the United States um, is certainly winning this week. Anyway, um, first of all, this is called um, Last Call with Two Boozy Hacks. I'm drinking a um, uh, um, a Pinot Grigio Rosé um, from, um, from the province 
di Pavia, and it's rather nice. Pale and pink, a bit like my politics, but nevertheless, it's good stuff. Tom Watson, what are you drinking? I am drinking a 2019 Shiraz from the province of the Co-op supermarket in Bugley. <laughs> certainly couldn't come from Shiraz <laughs> in the proper province, right? Um, I'm drinking a gin and soda as per usual, Bombay Sapphire, because it's, I think I get a discount now by the guy running the corner store because I just walk in and he, he goes to the shelf immediately and pulls it down. So <laughs> I don't know if that's high functioning alcoholism or that's just alcoholism full stop at this point, but um, uh, by the way, the um, what's with the soda? Why don't you drink? Why, why aren't you British? Why don't you drink it uh, the proper, properly, like gin and tonic? Yeah, it's too sweet, and and I find the sodas it it balances out the booze much better because sugar only contributes to a hangover in the morning. So if you cut out the sugar, less of a hangover. That's why drinking wine in vast quantities is so bad. The next day, you feel like death walked over because of it's not the booze that does you, and it's all the sugar. I'm um. I'm getting on in life, and I learn something new every day. Mm. Is it going to change my habits? Not nope. at all. Um, Tom, how has your lockdown been? Oh, John, what a question! Um, well, f- firstly, let me put you right on the um, on the liking of drink. I barely drunk a drink this lockdown. Uh, in fact, probably the only reason I've come on your podcast, or not the only reason, but the main reason is you've given me an excuse to actually go to the province of the co-op and buy a bottle of wine. Uh, <laughs> My, my lockdown started well. Uh, the middle period was, uh, you, you know, I, I think I went a little bit off the rails, and now I think I'm back in back in a sort of disciplined way again. Um, and all that I've tried to be very disciplined. I've tried to retain an intellectual curiosity, so I've been taking some online courses. I've been listening to many, many audible books that I uh, that have just kept me going through the day. I've tried to be very uh, Aristotelian in my habits and tried to do exercise every day, and it's been a struggle. I started off very well. I was doing Joe Wick's YouTube videos with my kids. I was uh, – how crazy do you want me to be? Do you want me to tell you? I mean, in the first few weeks – Okay, so obviously, like a lot of people, I ended up having to do a lot of sort of Zoom calls and I realized I was sitting in a chair for hours on end. So I got an old phone. I set it to go, the alarm to go off every hour and play me a Bob Marley track from the Exodus album, which was my prompt to do 10 press-ups, 10 sit-ups, 10 star jumps uh, uh, every hour on the hour. And I did that religiously for about three or four weeks to the point where I was actually feeling pretty damn fit. Uh, and then it all went totally awry. And then I discovered I needed uh, – I started buying cheese online. <laughs> I, I, read, I read a brilliant book by Ned Palmer called The Cheesemonger's Guide to uh, History of Britain, which is – if you want to understand British culture and British politics, read The Cheesemonger's History of Britain. Uh, and I, and I realised there was just this terrible problem with the, with the artisan and farmhouse cheesemaking industry and that no one, no one could get their cheese, buy their cheese. So – I started buying on mounds of cheese and eating it and put a bit of weight on and stopped exercising 
but I've managed to get that back on track in the last few weeks. That's a long way to say, like the rest of the world, my lockdown is very up and down. You know what's funny about that? I, I, I come across an article for an essay I'm writing on A. Houseman uh, that Shropshire Blue was served at Boris Johnson's big We Finally Made Brexit Happen party, which doesn't get more evocative in English than that, right? So I, I, I'm quite keen to read that book, actually. I, I, recommend, I recommend it, Mike. I'll get you a copy. Um, I'll get you a copy. I, it, interestingly, because, of course, cheesemaking was sort of – there, there were county traditions, and we've still got it. There's Cheshire cheese. There's mm-hmm. Red Leicester. There's Double Gloucester. Uh, now, my, my home county, I was brought up in Worcestershire in a small town called Kidderminster, and I've just moved back near there in Bewdley. Um and there's, there's virtually no cheese making goes on in the county, given, but we're a sort of agricultural county. So yeah. one of the things I'm trying to do is work out whether way back when there was a, there was a particular kind of cheese for my home county. And I fancy in my new post-political life becoming a cheesemaker because obviously blessed are the cheesemakers and they shall inherit the earth. And I think that's a new thing I should try and start to do. I um talking of Jesus, I'm, writing, <laughs> I'm writing a a historical thriller set in the uh, World War Two. It's a fantastic story about a special operations executive guy who's parachuted in, into Italy, and then I'm kind of I'm, I'm making stuff up because it's a novel, but it's based on a true story. Anyway, he the, 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 he's captured by the fascists, and somebody gives him a cup of coffee. And then there's this awful realization because he's he's half English, he's half Italian, and it's the first time he's been back in Italy for four years. And as he sips the coffee, he realizes this is the the, the best coffee he's had in four years' time. And then uh, then he does a he escapes, and the resistance give him um, a little packed lunch. And uh, and I'm just uh, he's up in um, near Lake Como, and I'm, um, I'm I've just looked on the internet. What are the cheeses Lake Como? And there's um, um, there's what? Oh my gosh, it's just gone from my brain. What's a really fantastic cheese with uh, gorgonzola? Gorgonzola, and then there's something uh, actually in my waitrose in Battersea, the source of my Pinot Grigio. There's a um, there's a new thing called La Torta the uh, gorgonzola, which is kind of gorgonzola cake, and it's so yummy mm. and and anyway i was just sort of, sort of um, essentially what i've been doing is um researching the local cheeses in northern italy and then kind of crying and sobbing to myself and then buying them when i go to the supermarket now i haven't gone online that's the next thing and what's the name of this book again uh, um, tom what's it i think it's the cheesemonger's history of britain by um uh, uh palmer ned palmer it's a wonderful book, and if you want to, if you want an early early recommendations, I recommend Mrs. Kirkham's Lancashire or Kirkham's Lancashire, and there's a cheese which is basically Stilton, but it's called Stitchleton, and there's politics behind it because back in the day, the people that make Stilton defined that you could only make it with pasteurised milk because they were worried about people thinking they were going to get some terrible disease or illness as a result of using unpasteurized milk and this stitchleton cheese is basically stilton made with unpasteurized milk and it is it's to die for so it'll be it, it trumps gorgonzola hands down and if you want if you want a fusion cheese 
there's a there's a cheese maker in Leeds called I think his name's Mario Olness and he does a he does a cheese called Yorkshire Pecorino that won the gold <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking, it won the gold cheese award this year and I, I this cheese was so good I ate it and I nearly wept with joy. So and you can get it online. You can get it online, it's perfect. Hey, um... There's, there's of course a French counterpart volume to this book, which is called "Are You Fucking Kidding Me?" To be fair to Ned, I mean this book, this book has been, it, you know, it's sort, it's selling very well, and I, I think he's now been commissioned to do the sort of cheesemonger's guide to France. So, I mean, oh, it's, a, it's a good life if you if you can sell the books on the back of it. I, I admire it greatly. Oh man, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and do the uh, Sweeney's Cheese Guide to Italy. No, I, I get. Uh, well, I was gonna say I was gonna get Trump by that, and then that brings uh, back dark thoughts. But yeah, so the, will you, Tom? Will you miss the lockdown when it's over? It's hard to say. I, I um, I, I mean, I, for me, it's a sort of it's a peculiar situation because I sort of left the intensity of politics in December. Uh, the decision was a. It came on me very quickly, uh, so I'm kind of getting used to myself a little bit. Um, you, you know, the intensity of my sort of professional life has calmed down. L- like you, John, I'm writing a book. I won't bore you to death with the plot, but it's a political thriller, and it's not based on any real events or people, even though everyone says it's bound to be. Um, and um, so, I have been very. I've been. I've been creative. I've written a lot. Um, I, I, I've read a lot. I'm growing vegetables. I'm I'm sort of walking in the wild forest. So in one sense, I'll miss it. Uh, but I've not. It's the furthest I've been away from London in sort of 25 years. And um, there are bits of London life that I miss. We we had. Uh, let's be fair. Tell us um, about the phone conversation we had the other week, where you said where you would want to take me for a drink. Would like to share that with our three or four listeners. <laughs> um, I, I can't actually remember where I said, but it, it could. There are there are so many places I'd take you for a drink. It, it could be, but it would probably be around Frith Street or Dean Street in Soho, and it would probably be many places. I would say, John, maybe the Groucho Club, maybe the Coach and Horses, maybe the Spanish Bar, a little bit off just off uh, Tottenham Court Road, but definitely around there. I'm missing it. Oh, oh, oh. You know what I missed uh, when I lived in London was the Gay Hussar. Oh, where I mean, that's where David Cameron basically formed a government in waiting, right? Um, it was such a great, it, it sort of reminded me of an Evelyn Waugh novel, you know, where these Eastern European counts in exile would hang out and, you know, well, their goulash and such. Joe Kennedy used to. Uh, yeah. Uh, exactly. With Michael Foot. Uh, strange, strangely, you mentioned the Gay Hussar. I, I, I very briefly chaired a cooperative that tried to buy the Gay Hazar when the landlords um, were trying to sell it, sell the freehold, um, because it's got such a sort of deep resonance for mm. p- politicians on left and right, um, and the history of it is amazing. Um, yeah. when M- Michael Foote, had a, we had a, a surprise party for Michael Foote, former Labour leader, on his, it was either, I think it was his 90th birthday, um, and he gave a great speech, and there was a, it was a very famous moment where um, I actually nearly ended up in a fight with Gordon Brown's spin doctor when he um, uh, decided to lift his kilt, um, having drunk too many 
glasses <laughs> of Paul's blood red wine. And this is actually true and documented and in the public domain. Uh, <laughs> and, and, a, and a very famous tabloid journalist called Paul Routledge was a witness to the event. Uh, so it must be true. Mm. Uh, so it's a great Paul, uh, Paul ended up, or anyway, one stage in his uh, great and varied career, uh, Paul um, was my news editor at The Observer. And... Uh, uh, <laughs> The number of times uh, he told me off for um, for bad behaviour. Oh my uh, God! Uh, that, uh, was, was but what my I've I've got a lot. I loved the Gay Hussar, and um, for a time I worked on the Times Diary. Then Wapping happened, and I didn't go. But for a bit, I could take um, uh, um, politicians and people who, who just interested me out to out to lunch at the Gay Hussar, and I loved it. And I loved that place, and and, and I feel utterly miserable that it's been closed down by whichever scum landlords uh, did so, um, all concerned in any wrongdoing. Anyway, one day I took out uh, John McCarthy, uh, who was in the hospital, and uh, he's very, very funny, and he's got a great social conscience, and um, we we took him out to lunch, or I took him out to lunch, and we just, and, and we just, and I think the thing with John was he spent five years chained to a radiator in a basement in Beirut. So compared with ordinary people, he's got five years more liver uh, in him. Than, uh, <laughs> it's an interesting perspective I, there. I, I, well, yeah, he, you know, that's how he put it. And he, uh, anyway, so, I mean, I like a drink. And boy, does John McCarthy like a drink. And he's catching up. Um, the other thing he likes to do is play cricket because there is nothing better if you spend five years changed to a radiator um, in a, a basement in Beirut than standing in the in the middle of a, nowhere in a field in England with a pub nearby. That's pretty cool. But anyway, we, we drank and drank and drank. And at six o'clock, there's a dodgy guy there, the lovely waiter. I think he's from Poland. I think his name is also John. And John. he always had a slightly weird... John Roval. Yeah, he always had. He was a wonderful human being, but he always had a slightly creepy edge, and um, as if everything was inside a spy uh, novel. And I can remember uh, the moment he approaches with the menu. Uh, John, uh, the, uh, the waiter, explained what was uh, what things were, and John McCarthy leaned forward to me after he'd gone and said, "The chicken paprika is hot tonight." <laughs> anyway, at the end of all of this, at six o'clock, we were kicked out of the gay hussar because they had to change the um, the tablecloths and all of that. But that was, I think, my um, one of the longest and most favourite um, drinking sessions. And then, and then we carried on in Soho, and then the woman I was living with joined us. And I, you've got to meet John McCarthy. And then a couple of friends. And it was just such a wonderful, wonderful thing. And it's gone, and I feel sad. That it's gone. I really yeah. yeah, it's a piece of um, it's a piece of London and political history, and it, it really is outrageous. And and a very many hundreds of people tried to save that restaurant, uh, but I'm afraid the, the sort of overdevelopment of Soho continues, and they lost out. And wow. it, it's, a, it's a real shame. It's a real shame. One of, one of the exciting things about the uh, the new world order post COVID is that things like flying everywhere seem silly if you can just do a Zoom call with people. And the other thing is that if you can spend money um, on a house with a garden and live in the countryside and then Zoom into meetings, that's great. 
So therefore, I think the, this age of mad building in places like London and New York is going to come to a stop at least for a few years. And then hopefully we can get our city back into something which is both wonderful and livable in. And therefore... Well, they opening up um, upstate New York, the Hudson River Valley, uh, Connecticut. And what you can do is you can go outside and dine uh, al fresca with respecting social distancing rules and all that. So I don't know. I mean, I, I you know, I go back and forth on this, whether we are in a kind of post-apocalyptic situation where it's the end of restaurants, it's the end of nightlife, it's the end of pubs and bars versus, well, look, you know, we had this in 1918 and everybody still flocked to major metropolitan areas mm -hmm. after the, the Spanish flu had dissipated. I can't see New York, for instance, becoming anything other than what New York has traditionally been. Now, it's it's true that it's become uh, prohibitively expensive. I mean, there is no functioning middle class in Manhattan anymore. You have to be incredibly wealthy to live there, which is why I, my wife and I don't. Um, but the, where, the where, where do you live again? We live in Queens, in Forest Hills, um, home of Simon and Garfunkel at one point, and Spider Man, <laughs> and David Horowitz. Sadly, so two out of three ain't bad. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, we're everybody I know was already in a kind of suburban sprawl mode simply because of the cost of living. And the average apartment price in Manhattan, I think, is it's upwards of forty five hundred a month. Um, so, you know, you can't. And now the, the, the strange thing, though, is real estate is not doing as badly as you might think, because people who have the, the, the resources are pouring it into equity. Right. Mm -hmm. because the stock market is so volatile. So I don't know. I, I think there's going to be an accommodation because COVID will be with us for a while. And this thing is sort of gradually being phased out. But people are still, I mean, in the summer, it's unimaginable. Even the tri-state area, people are not going to go out and uh, go to bars and, and restaurants and, and the rest of it if they're allowed to. And they're starting to be. So I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, I can't imagine what London must be like under these circumstances. One of the online courses I've done is with the University of Amsterdam on uh, just a 16-hour course on urban planning and cycling. Because um, it just really interests me about how, you know, I was trying to, I've been trying to do these courses that just sort of skill me up a bit about what the post-COVID COVID world might look like. I did another one on with John Hopkins University on um, contact tra tracing. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems to me that, you know, if you, you know, with, with the e-bike revolution, you could change transportation in cities that give people spaces back. My sector is the creative industries. And I think there's loads of people who felt they needed a, an office space in London. They've got tiny little offices and actually they're doing okay with distributed working and they'll, they'll, they'll end up using communal spaces from now on. They might not take rents on offices. So I think things will change. But the desire for people to commune and to share ideas and be in each other's company is not going to go away, isn't it? And as you say, we came out of the First World War and the and the flu in 1918 and went straight into the roaring 20s. And it seems to me that the lid is going to blow off whenever, as soon as people could get back to that kind of ability to spend time in each other's company again. I miss yeah. pubs so much. Yeah, me too. It's it's a kind of, um, and there's a whole range of things. I miss, you know, going to the booze. There's my mates for a planned drink. 
but also every now and then, you know, with the private eye crossword, going to a pub in Soho, um, and 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 just sitting in a pub in Soho. Um, my favourite um, is the Tucan, the Irish pub, just yes. off Soho Square, and um, with a pint of Guinness and a packet of. Uh, uh, sorry, this sounds ritualistic. I was an altar boy once. Um, and uh, <laughs> this is kind of uh, my secular mass. Pint of Guinness, packet of potato, eating onion crisp, private eye crossword. And then I'm sitting on my own having a, a, a drink, kind of watching the world uh, go about its business, but also enjoying that sweetness of that moment. And and it's that's that's a kind of heaven for me. And um, and I and I miss it. So uh, another pub I am desperate to go for a drink in. Um, and I'm going to ask you, uh, there's a point to this, uh, is the John Snow. Now, John Snow was the great, great English doctor, uh, the London doctor, who didn't drink, as it happens, but never mind. But what he did was he worked out that cholera came from dirty soil water. That's right. Water that. And basically where I live in Lambeth, um, um, quite close to where I live, there is a shrine, which is an upturned boat, which is a memorial to the last great victims of the cholera um, epidemic in London, which was about 1850. And then this fantastic doctor worked out that we need clean water. And the Victorians got it and they went for it and they uh, they built the um, uh, the embankments, put sewers in, put clean water, and they went on and on and on and on and on about this. They really, really hit it. So the thing is, yes, the Victorians made money, but first... They defended and secured the public health. They beat cholera. And that message was sort of telegraphed across the world. And therefore, and that was part of the reason for um, uh, Britain's great success in the 19th century was that we got our public health right and then the money flowed. Are we fools to have ignored that message? Oh, public health. I, I honestly think public health, I mean... It, you know the institutional arrangements for public health in Britain have been found wanting. I think, haven't they? The 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 the, the distance between public health England and our NHS has caused some difficulties. I think, and um, I, I that because that message that that is fascinating because that that pump is in Soho, isn't it? That that the the yeah. actual pump, yeah. Um, he cracked it. It was the Brewer Street yeah. pump. So when he was, my, I took my kids to see it a few months before lockdown, actually, and my daughter knew the story and pointed it out. I was very proud of it. Um, I, I mean, the, the emphasis is on preventative health, and the, the NHS makes you well when you're sick, and it does it at scale, and it does it very well. Um, but it seems to me that public policy could change quite dramatically in the in the area of preventative health. Now, I mean, food production, nutrition. Um, social prescribing, um, public health advice, education in schools. There's a whole piece of work. Um, you know, re- the retail sector pushing unhealthy products to us through marketing. Um, hey, Tom, you're the guy who's been talking about cheese. For- <laughs> <laughs> well, ironically, ironically, I'm less. Uh, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not so worried about cheese as a health thing. It, it's obviously calorific really high, but actually those those fats in cheeses I think uh, are underestimated. And, and one of the things I've been you know I've been on a health journey. In fact, my my latest book, Downsizing, is about how I lost weight and kicked type two diabetes. And I basically did it by 
getting refined sugar out of my diet and uh, completely and and uh, so I'm I'm definitely with Mike on on I drink vodka and soda most of the time, um, but but also scaling down the carbohydrates uh, and we currently I think the advice we give people is um, is wrong for some of them I think our physiologies are different and I think we could do bespoke nutritional advice at GP level in the UK and we could have a preventative health revolution post-covid and if there's a lesson that comes out of it it's that we can we can get the nation far healthier by taking public health seriously now and um that that needs a little bit of investment i think um amen to that do you miss the old days the old days of politics or the old days of hell raising and pizza eating and sugar dependency and all of that i actually well I, but by the way, I think I should announce. Um, I think I first met you in the One Ton That's in, right. um, in Charlotte Street, and I was there was um, I think my kind of god, my unofficial uh, godson um, Fred Skullthorpe was with me, and suddenly, and and you uh, you were having, there was some party you were at, and I and I kind of joined in, and there was a terrible bender. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> I think the uh, the answer to your question, to my question, is yes, both. Do you miss the bad old days of benders and pizzas and everything? And do you miss politics in that order? So, do um, you miss... Um, yeah, the answer is on both. On, on, on benders, I mean, I, I'm much more... You know, I go to bed at half nine these days. I, I, I So boring. If I know, sorry about this, Matt. If, if I drink, you know, I'll probably drink alcohol once a week max um that's not to say i don't have the odd all day uh, and i really miss them i like the youth in me you know the sun shining on skin drinking uh, at that pub in soho the toucan you know i i know that well I, so i kind of miss it um but not enough to carry on with it um and then on politics I've i literally the day i stood down as an mp and deputy leader and announced it I took my team out. We had a few glasses of wine. And I thought, if I wake up tomorrow with any regrets, it'll be the worst day of my life. And I woke up and the sun was shining. The page had turned. I was an ex-politician. And a very heavy weight had been lifted off my shoulders. And so far, I've not had any regrets at all. And I've not missed it once. There was a tiny little um, ripple I had when... um, when Keir Starman was elected and he was appointed his new shadow cabinet and I thought it was a really smart shadow cabinet and I, I and I thought oh I could work with those guys uh, but that was it that was that was my only little wobble and it only lasted for about half an hour why did you stand down um for many reasons I, 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 people forget I, I was first employed by the Labour Party as a trainee library assistant at the age of 17 and this is really to say I'd been pretty much in politics for a very long time, even though I was standing down at 53. I'd had the kind of career that, you know, sp- spanned nearly 30 years on and off. Um, I'd been on a health journey. Uh, it had been a very harsh uh, four years politically as deputy leader of the party. Um, and I just took a leap. I wanted a change of 
pace, change of life. There were other things that interested me. Um, you know, things in my private life. I wanted to be close. You know, there's a, there's a, there's always a, there's never one reason why people do these things in politics. I know, I know. There's always kind of series about people why people do it, but at the end of the day, there were just a lot of a lot of a hundred different reasons why it was the right thing to do. And uh, I still don't know what the future holds for me in the long run, but um, I don't regret changing direction. Do you think that um, that the Labour Party under the new leadership is making the right noises and the right moves of late? I mean, Keir Starmer seems to be getting pretty good marks, particularly at PMQs. Um, how would you rate his performance thus far? Yeah, I, th- I mean, certainly days. I, I mean, firstly, um, the fact that he was elected uh, yeah. Is good news for the Labour Party because I, I, I mean, I, I personally liked all the people that ran against him, but I mean, he, he seems to me clearly he was the, the most able candidate and the one that I think could connect with voters that had left Labour over previous elections. Um, and yeah, he was he was pretty ruthless in the way he removed people from the front bench and recreated a team, which was. Um, you know, if I'd have been in his shoes, I probably wouldn't have sacked as many people as he did. Uh, but he seemed to do it, um, you know, he had a good reshuffle uh, to the point that some of the people he sacked said he did it very politely, which, you know, leaders normally aren't very good at that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and he's focusing on the big issues. Uh, in the chamber, I mean, there was one there was one prime minister's question time i mean it's it's weird watching it when they're just it's just the two of them in the chamber but at one point boris johnson looked more like the accused than the prime minister i thought (laughs) (laughs) um, you you know you could tell he was a prosecutor Um, now now obviously that's not going to last for five years i mean parliament will be back and then sort of the baying mob will be in there uh but I mean, it shows that he, he's he's got great precision and he can think on his feet. Um, and then, of less interest to the general public, perhaps. But um, he's just managed to appoint his own general secretary, who essentially will be the person responsible for Labour's election strategy. Uh, the fact that he got his own way shows that he's got some political skill, because um, you know the internal politics of the Labour Party is still pretty turbulent. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about that, too, because, you know, what we're seeing in the U.S. now, I mean, I, you know, the, the, the Corbyn and uh, Sanders analogy was very flawed from the beginning, but there are certain you know, areas of congruence. And, and the one thing that's happening now in the Democratic Party in the U.S. is um, sort of the far left and the hardcore Bernie bro contingent still very hostile to the idea of Joe Biden, a centrist with, you know, decades of um, quote unquote, neoliberal policies behind him um, as the the presumptive nominee. And there seems to be this struggle by the Biden campaign and the, the broader Democratic Party to reconcile those interests and to bring in those progressives, the, the, the Sandersista component uh, into the party. And it doesn't seem to really be working. I mean, some of the, the trendsetters in this, including the editor-in-chief of Jacobin magazine, uh, profess their you know, they're going to vote for the Green Party candidate. How do you see in the UK context? I mean, Labour under a new, more centrist leadership, are they making inroads with, you know, people who feel let down that Corbyn didn't win and who who simply refused to kind of give up the ghost of that, uh, you know, leadership mantle? Or, uh, I mean, you know, are it's sort of the, the Novara um, canary 
lot. Are they at all coming around to just accepting that this is a better alternative to the Tory government, or are they still very hostile to the idea of this man as leader of the opposition? I mean, that can, that Navarro Canary lot, I mean, they kind of, um, I mean, those two, I, I, I mean, they're so irrelevant to the lives of many tens of millions of British people. <laughs> Uh, I, I didn't. I tried not to spend a lot of emotional and intellectual bandwidth on them when I was deputy leader. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, is Keir Starmer ever going to win them round? Of course, he isn't. Mm. Um, I mean, he, they're 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 looking for betrayal narratives already. Um, I, I guess I haven't been around a while. I think that will only help him uh, build the alliance with the people he really needs to um, build an alliance with, which is the very many millions of working people for whom Labour has always been their traditional home, but some of these sort of more eccentric positions we took on um, foreign policy uh, and, you know, sort of less mainstream issues, I I think um, will will help him build a new alliance. So, I mean, every time time he's attacked by Navarra Media and the Canary, I think will help him position himself in an electorally winning position i mean the 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 real thing that really interests me actually uh, uh, about all the young people that joined the labor party we had many hundreds of thousands of young people who joined who who were not ideologues so you know they were portrayed as sort of uh, marxists or um, trotskyists or whatever they were just young people who didn't get a fair share of the economic pie and mm-hmm. they wanted social change. And some of them were channeled into factions because they were sort of on their political journey and they're, they're now maturing. Um, I mean, the real the real issue for me is um, where does Kia go with them? And I think he's kept them. And I think they've realised that, um, you, you know, there's, there, there is a, that you need to build an electoral pact with um, a section of the electorate who don't necessarily share all your values. Uh, and it's whether the sort of factions within the party allow Keir to build that manifesto pledge with those people or not. Um, so there's still tough times ahead. Mm. But um, I, I, and of course, the electoral mountain to climb after the defeat at the last election is going to be very hard to do that one term. But, but it's possible. It's possible. I mean, this is a thing that I, you know, I, I grapple with all the time, particularly in the American context. You know, after the election in the UK. The, the Observer columnist Nick Cohen had a, a line, which I thought was quite good and memorable, which is, your Twitter feed is not your country, right? So for those of us, particularly in the writer, the, the, the journalistic profession who spend a lot of time online to understand what each other is thinking and, and talking about, uh, it really did seem like, you know, it was all over but the shouting. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn would be the next prime minister, or at least the, the performance at the election wouldn't, would be a, a very near-run thing. And instead, a drubbing not seen for almost 100 years. Um, and, and you know, again, all of these sort of tastemakers or trendsetters on the far left who had been really pushing for Corbyn, um, as you say, it was, it was the, the stabbed in the back theory and the, the, the recriminations about betrayal and so on and so on. But, you know, internally within the party itself, you talk about sort of, you know, the, 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 the vast majority of, of labor supporters or people who would otherwise have voted labor, just not really giving a shit about what these blogs and podcasters and all the rest of it were saying. And, and their, their basic fundamental economic needs were not being met. And that's why they would have otherwise supported labor. Your postmortem on the election 
uh, would be what? what? Was it to do with Brexit? Was it to do with the man himself, Jeremy Corbyn? Was it to do with these eccentric foreign policy positions? What, what, what accounted for this colossal defeat in your view? All of the above. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think, I, you know, if I, if I portray last, the last election, I would say for most voters in Britain, it was the least worst option election for them. I don't think they bought into Boris Johnson's leadership uh, mm. uh, or, or direction. I mean, they, they'd not really built a relationship with Boris Johnson as a, as a political leader uh, by that point. Um, uh, but they were not convinced by Labour's programme. I mean, we, lo- we we did lose the 2017 election. It, it, always, it always amused me that even for some of my colleagues in the shadow cabinet, that they they came out of the election in 2017, um, having lost seats after seven years of being in opposition, and it almost they kind of felt it was a victory because we weren't we weren't annihilated, right? Um, and, and they thought so strategically. The thing we didn't do in 2017 was work out why people didn't vote for us in enough numbers. Then, in fact, what we doubled we doubled down on 2017, and thought that. We just needed to convince a few more people that our socialist program was um, was going to transform their lives, and, and they just didn't buy it. Um, we weren't convincing. They didn't. They didn't. You know, I'm, I'm I'm as responsible for that as anyone else who was on the front bench of the Labour Party. But they didn't buy it. Um, and so there's some pretty big decisions Labour has yet to make. I mean, you know, foreign policy is one. Defence is the other. Where do we go on the economy? I mean, we're not even in the we're not even in the te- the debate on the economy yet. And w- when we get out of the COVID months, it's going to be a very different world, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's two there's two big issues that uh, need addressing. The first is climate change uh, and sustainability, and and the second is um, you, you know we're going to be in a, a world of global debt and. There's a huge risk out there, isn't there? We, we, uh, I mean, every major economy is banking on inflation remaining very low. And mm. if there's a in inflation, that's going to have dramatic impacts, isn't it? So, um, and, and Labour will be, like all, like all pol- political parties, will be trying to work up its response to that. Uh, and um, it's early days in, that, in the parliamentary cycle to try and see whether voters buy into their programme. Tom, well, the thing that upset me the most about the Corbyn years was the anti-Semitism. What yeah. do you think? Well, I, I, I mean, so in twenty seventeen, after the twenty seventeen election, um, uh, one minute past ten, I, I mean, I understood straight away that Jeremy had done enough to earn the right to take us into the next election. Uh, which could have been months after that one. In the end, it was two years. Uh, and I I made the decision that I, I would try and show a bit of humility and build bridges and bring the party together and try and hold it together uh, and acknowledge that the, the tensions we'd had in the past, you know, we needed to get beyond that. Uh, and I tried to do that without making any public interventions on things I was concerned about. And in the end, I had to intervene on two issues, and one was anti-Semitism. And because I I grew up in a small town in the Midlands in the 1980s, and I was politicised through 
anti-racism campaigns. You know, I'm a working class kid from Kidderminster. I, I revered the specials. I wore my Fred Perry and racism was huge in the 70s in, in my area. Uh, and we were being infested with anti-Jewish racism in our party. It was vicious, uncompromising, uh, and I couldn't understand it. I still don't understand it, uh, uh, but I, I, I couldn't not speak out. And it caused terrible offence to people who just disagreed with me. You know, people people just blindly denied that we had anti-Semites in our ranks, and we did. Uh, and I think it... I, I, I think the inquiry into the party will, when it finally reports, it'll be a very great stain on a century-old institution um, that is going to be very hard to recover from. Now, you know, I want, maybe you can articulate this because, you know, the the, the, the apologetics or the defences for Corbyn's leadership with respect to the anti-Semitism issue was that, no, 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 no. It was, it was people who were opposed to Israeli human rights abuses and the occupation. And, you know, it was, it was an anti-imperialist politics, which is completely consonant with anti-Zionism and anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. Can you tell me, and can you tell our listeners, all three of them, what you saw that was expressly anti-Jewish and targeting the Jewish community in the UK or perhaps even just Jews in general, um, that really just kind of crossed the line over from any sort of geopolitical consideration into just outright racism? Um, well, I mean, the, the, um, there was, the language used was racist. For, I mean, okay, so first of all, let me say, mm. uh, there, there, there's this kind of spectrum on this, isn't there? There, there were very many members who, in online forums, uh, had campaigned for many years for um, human rights for the Palestinians, who were very angry with the elected government of Israel, and um, you know, some inadvertently crossed a line and used language that was clearly anti-Semitic. Um, but but it wasn't as it 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 wasn't that simple. It wasn't just simple, you know, good people making mistakes. Within within that group, there were others that I just thought genuinely could not distinguish between uh, uh, Jewish people and the state of Israel, mm. uh, and and didn't like Jewish people. And I look at I, I, I I've said it publicly, Luciana Berger who was one of our members of parliament was bullied out of the Labour Party. And the main reason for that was that she was a Jewish woman. Uh, and I, 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 I can never, I can never allow that. I, I can, I can never come to terms with that. Uh, and the Labour Party is going to have to come to terms with it and acknowledge that these things were allowed to happen. I mean, you know, I, I'll, I might ask you this. Well, in fact, let me just do, and you can choose not to answer it if you, if you want. Um, you know, a lot of people, particularly in the British Jewish community, came out and said, actually, the problem, the, the fish rots at the head. Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite. He may be an anti-Semite who doesn't realize he's anti-Semitic because he's been trafficking in these tropes for so long. Uh, the mural, for instance, which depicts, uh, you know, sinister cabal of capitalists all with hooked noses out of Der Sturmer. Uh, he was completely tone deaf or I suppose, you know, whatever the eyesight version of tone deaf is to, to the implications of that. 
um, accusing a British Jew of of not uh, being conversant in in the English traditions of irony, for instance, or dark insinuations of these kinds, to say nothing of the coziness with um, not anti-Israel but terrorist organizations and and their their people. Um, you know, I know this is a particularly sensitive issue, but I mean, was that part of the problem institutionally? I mean, if the leader of the party himself suffers from a pathology that has has now been seen to infest uh, the rank and file of the party on social media and beyond, um, that certainly would account for why labor became this kind of lodestone for the crazies, wouldn't you say? Well, I mean, no, I mean, it, it doesn't. It really doesn't matter whether I, I mean whether Jeremy is or isn't anti-Semitic. Um, this happened on his watch. These people joined the Labour Party when he was leader. He, uh, I mean, he, he, you know, there's a responsibility for all of us in political leadership to deal with these matters. Yeah, and you know, now, admittedly, I mean, he, <laughs> it, it's not true that if you're leader of the Labour Party, you control all the decisions the Labour Party makes. There is a National Executive Committee, and believe me, there were some very unpleasant people elected to that committee as well. Um, who, who I, I find some positions they took uh, intolerant. However, you know, it could have been sorted out, uh, yeah. uh, and these people could have been removed from office and removed from the party very easily, and they weren't. Uh, you know, uh, who did what, where, and why? I mean, there were, you know, I know this, uh, you know, this this is going to have to be dealt with. This is gonna, all going to have to come out. Um, uh, and even now, I'm an ex-deputy leader. I didn't see the submission the Labour Party General Secretary gave to the Human Rights Commission on, in their inquiry on this. I was refused um, free access to it. I was I was told that I'd be able to see it briefly, not take it out of the room to consider it, and I'd need a lawyer and uh, people in the room with me, and I'd have to sit in the room with Jeremy to read it. And I, I, I said, it's, it's clearly unacceptable. You know, I need I need to take this away and review it, but they wouldn't let me see it. Was this a case, do you think, about, you know, let's let's welcome in this sort of broad tent of conspiracy theorists and racists and nutters because, frankly, we need the votes. I mean, similar, one might say, to how Donald Trump describes Nazis and fascists in Charlottesville as, as good people. Uh, he doesn't want to alienate that sort of constituency for cynical purposes rather than ideological ones. I... Um... I don't know whether there, I don't really know my. I, I, I mean, it, it's it's a world so beyond beyond the world I'm in. Mm. I can't understand the thought processes of these people. I, I really can't. I, I, um, I, I mean, of course, there's cynicism in politics, uh, but I don't. I, I just don't know why. I, I, I can't give you a clear answer about why these people are allowed to remain. Um, mm. I, I, let me uh, cut in here for a second. Um, my friend James Miller uh, taught my kids uh, how to surf, and uh, we did we won um, some prizes for a, a, a film we did about a massacre uh, in um, in Kosovo. And uh, James was shot dead by a member of the Israeli Defence Force in. Uh, Gaza in 2003. So I am fully aware of, of the crimes 
and the wrongs that the state of Israel has committed to the Palestinian people. And at the same time, I couldn't believe the stuff coming yeah. out of the Labour Party. Tom, did, was that something that went through your head? Yes, of course. I mean, I mean, the, 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 this is this thing that's so desperate, isn't it? Of course. I mean, everyone in the Labour Party is appalled, or most people in the Labour Party are appalled at the decisions of the Netanyahu elected government. Um, but perfectly able to distinguish between <laughs> the decisions taken by a political administration uh, and understand the need for Jewish people to have a homeland. Uh, I mean, there's no, uh, you, you know, it's it, uh, it's very hard to see how the the, the how you can make the case that the um, this was just a case of blurred edges. Uh, okay, I remember in 2010, David Cameron coming out and saying Gaza is an open air prison. And I don't remember, I mean, even the most Zionist Tory accusing him of anti-Semitism for saying that. They might not have liked what he said, but it didn't cross that boundary because he, he, he confined it within the parameters of, uh, you know, a foreign state's human rights practices or lack thereof. Um, so this was actually a, a, a kind of cross-party thing. You know, conservatives have denounced Netanyahu uh, historically in, in UK politics as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, look, this is for it to sort of for anti-Semitism to be anywhere near the mainstream of uh, politics. We've not seen that for many, many decades in in uh, in our political parties. Although, I mean, some people, you know, some of my friends in the Jewish community challenge me on that. They say it's always been there; it's just never been it's just never been articulated. Um, and maybe they're right. I mean, but, the, but the, whatever. Whatever the reason for it, I mean, anti-Semitism has been unleashed, and it's um, it's a, there were too many very close friends of mine who were genuinely frightened of the Labour Party having state power at the last election for me to feel very comfortable in the in the role I was doing. So, you know, I mean, I get I guess anti-Semitism helped contribute to my decision to leave politics, but. Um, I, I mean, and I, you know, I just hope that Kia can manage to deal with it very quickly. Uh, I mean, it, it, I, it, I, I nearly wept when his first public intervention as leader was to reach out to the British Jewish community and acknowledge that the, these matters needed putting right. Well, that was a beautiful moment. Uh, Tom, we haven't got that much long, but um, what was it like working with Seamus Milne? I didn't really, um, I didn't really have that much contact with him, to be honest, um, uh, John. Um, I mean, he's obviously a sort of junior aristocrat, so he was always very polite and courteous. Uh, but um, he, I didn't really share much of his politics, and it always amazed me that an avowed Stalinist communist would end up being a Labour Party member, let alone. <laughs> Director of communications for the leader of the Labour Party, uh, but you I know, to, I need to, I need to uh, share with our, our free listeners my um, my class hatred here, in that um, I was brought up. Um, we lived uh, um, um, in Manchester, and then uh, when I was ten, um, a family moved down to um, to Hampshire, and I went to a grammar school in Eastleigh, um, and Seamus Milne went to Winchester College, <laughs> and it's. It, it is 
comically posh, and it's also there. Most of the Cambridge spies uh, went to Winchester, and then here's this this almost comically uh, absurd Stalinist who went to Winchester College. He is the voice of the Labour Party, and the problem I had when I was a BBC journalist was, can I please do a profile of Seamus Malone in the way that I was allowed, when I worked for the Observer, to do profiles for the BBC um, about Alistair Campbell and his you know, shenanigans with Rupert Murdoch, blah, 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 blah. And it was impossible to get through. So although Seamus was a posh, aristocratic Stalinist, People were afraid of him, and it was impossible for me at the BBC to do a proper profile of the guy. Why was that? Well, you know, these toffs are well-connected, aren't they? And <laughs> I mean, wasn't his dad the head of the BBC at one point? He fell yeah, out with professional courtesy. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, was, I, I wasn't particularly... Um, no, I was troubled by Seamus, but I, the, the guy that actually freaked me out the most was Andrew Murray, who Seamus brought in. He, he's the guy that was the enforcer at Unite. And as far as I can see, he's even more aristocratic than Seamus, although I don't quite understand that world. Um, and and he, he really was hardcore Stalinist and, um, you know, at the very heart of decision-making at the apparatus of the Labour Party. And... Um, you know, I don't know whether he's still a Labour Party member or not, but I mean that that little cabal ha- have a lot of responsibility for both creating the you know the political tensions that were internal, uh, but also for the program that millions of working people in Britain didn't buy into. Well, there was the the, the conspiracy theories about the Skripal attempted assassination, um, chemical weapons use in Syria. I don't think there's an issue that the UK government took a very solid stance on with respect to foreign policy that Andrew Murray didn't have some alternative viewpoint for, uh, yeah. even in the face of overwhelming evidence. Yeah, I mean, I mean Scripple was uh, just one of many um, incidents that I, I couldn't quite believe we were taking that position on. Uh, mm. And he was a, a very doctrinaire uh, uh, and very brutal with people who took a different line. Mm. The thing that most upset me um, was Seamus Milne went to Moscow and did a gig at the Valdai Club, which is basically a um, a Kremlin talking shop. And he chaired the session, and one of the contributors was Vladimir Putin. So here is Seamus Milne, public schoolboy, went to college, posh boy, chairing a session, and one of the kind of supplements, supplicants is Vladimir Putin. What on earth, what kind of message does that send to the world and the British voters that your press officer is a guy who's thick with Vladimir Putin? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but I mean, First of all, you know, the British Communist Party had a rich tradition in the industrial left of politics that didn't necessarily uh, chime with the current administration in Russia and the, and the Putin regime. Uh, and it always amazes me how, you know, the sort of 
the tail end of communism is still so affectionate towards the, the political leadership of the state of Russia, even now. And so, uh, but they were, you know, that is who they are. I mean, they are, they are hardcore. They are doctrinaire. They are Stalinist. Uh, and, you, you know, all that lot, you know, you mentioned the Canary and Navarra media. As far as I can say, that that's, that's the old drum for the Stalinists in the British Communist Party. And, um, you know they've got a rich tradition. You know I've got I've got sort of um, deceased family members that were involved in uh, those political movements uh, in my in my heritage, but they've never been at the very beating heart of the British Labour Party, as far as I can see. Uh, and I, you know, that must have contributed to the sort of sense that Labour was not credible at the last election. Okay, so we've got five minutes. Let's have a bit of hope, a bit of optimism. I think that society, certainly myself, I've switched 10 points to the left since the COVID virus. I get things like, I really, really understand things like society and uh, healthcare workers, care workers helping us get through this awful thing. Has that hit you, Tom, as well? Yeah. I mean, uh, um, you know, we now know what a key worker is. I, uh, you know, if I order something on Amazon, I know the names of the guys that deliver my Amazon packages now, and I'm immensely proud of them, and I'm grateful for the risks they took in the early days of the virus. Uh, and, um, you know, I hope we can come out of this uh, sensitive to the need for stronger, robust public services and looking after those public sector workers, workers that have looked after our, um, our, our sick. Um, I hope we can think about a more tender, collaborative world. Um, you, you know, I, I think there are opportunities for us to have a more sustainable economy. You know, 10 years ago, we talked about a Green New Deal. It might be it might be that the world's ready for it now um, and that we can just recognise that there are things that we value so very deeply that we've missed we've missed out on. I mean, one of the roles I've got post-politics, I'm part-time chair of UK Music uh, and, you know, I don't know many people that are not using music to help get through lockdown. They're listening to more music, they're sharing music, there are artists communing with their audiences in different ways using technology. Um, it, it shows the richness of our culture. Uh, and I think people are just finding time to appreciate it more. And if we can keep that in our minds when we when things return to what they call normal, then, you know, maybe there are there is some good that can come out of this. Good. You've been listening to The Last Call with Two Boozy Hacks. I'm John Sweeney, uh, the guy in New York is Mike Weiss, and our special guest uh, uh, tonight has been Tom Watson. Thanks, Tom. Uh, take care. Cheers, Tom. Cheers. Cheers, Mark.